You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. So hi, my name's Hettle, and I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Manchester Vineyard, and it is so great to be able to speak with you this morning. And I've just wondered, have any of you guys ever been to a banquet? So I have multiple times. That's basically what dinner looked like when I grew up with my mum. So I'm Indian, and every night my mum would lay out multiple dishes. You've got your samosas, your curries, your dals, your rice, and the dishes would fill the table so much that our plates and cups barely fitted on it. We even had an overflow table where all the food that didn't fit on the main table would go. And we'd all sit squashed into a corner, arms locked in because we couldn't really move because there was just so much food everywhere. And for dinner, the idea was that you'd take a little bit of everything onto your plate. A little rice, a little dal, a samosa, and so on. And often, I couldn't fit every dish onto my plate. There was such an abundance, and it never felt like we finished anything. And this was a daily occurrence in my home. But sometimes we'd go to an Indian occasion, a wedding, a party at someone's house, and we'd quite literally get a banquet. Giant pots of the most amazing food in a row, which we'd queue for and fill our plates with. And at the start of these events, at the start of the queue, you'd be given one of these little plastic plates that had a 10 different size compartments on. So you could spoon a little bit of every dish into each compartment and the dishes didn't have to mix, which is helpful because you don't want your dal mixing with your dessert. And it meant that you could savor all the individual flavors. You could taste a bit of every amazing dish. And of course, you could go up for more after everyone had been served. So this morning, the talk, I hope, is going to be a little bit like a banquet. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is portrayed in the book of Hebrews. And the big idea of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to all other people, pursuits, hopes, and objects. The author takes his audience through the amazing roles, works, and attributes of Jesus to convince them that he is the best thing. So today, we're going to feast on the book of Hebrews, tasting a lot of the dishes that reflect Jesus. And my expectancy for you today is that as you listen to all these wonderful things about Jesus, that at least one of them will catch your attention, that the Spirit will stir you and prompt you to listen carefully and closely. And my encouragement to you today is to not let that pass you by, to respond in ministry if that feels right, to allow God to work that truth in your heart and mind, and to go home and delve further into that passage. The depths of Jesus are unfathomable. It's impossible to grasp fully who God is and what he's done for us. But it's so important for our faith that we do attempt to take Jesus in, that we take time to gaze upon his majesty and feast upon him. And it's important for so many reasons, but here's two. Firstly, because it helps us cling to Jesus and persevere through trials. So this is the main reason why the author of Hebrews wrote his letter. The original audience, the Hebrews to which the letter is addressed, were facing persecution because of their Christian faith. They were likely Jewish Christians who had faced a variety of hard situations in the past. The author refers to those who have lost property, been imprisoned and afflicted in many ways. But not only had they faced past trouble, the author speaks of present and future sufferings. The persecution that the Hebrews were facing was so intense at the time that people were considering turning back to Judaism and renouncing Jesus altogether. Because unlike Christianity, Judaism was recognized religion in the Roman Empire, so Jews were protected from persecution mostly. 
So turning back to Judaism and leaving Jesus behind was tempting as it may have eased their suffering. So the author writes a letter to urge them to cling to Jesus. He gives many reasons as to why Jesus is superior to all people, pursuits and objects, why he is worth clinging to. He urges the audience to cling on to him and persevere despite their sufferings. We may not be facing physical persecution. We may not be in jail or have lost property due to our faith. But it's safe to say suffering is a present reality in many of our lives. Most of us in the room today could talk about something that's currently upsetting us. And if it's not a present reality now, it may well be a recent reality. Or sadly, it may well be a future reality sooner than we could hope for. During these struggles, it can be really tempting to take a step away from Jesus to loosen our grasp on him. It might be you've had doubts about your faith in times of trouble. I've definitely been there. It might be that you're doubting his power, his ability to work through your situation, or doubting his love as something has happened to you that's hurt you. Perhaps you're struggling to trust him in a certain area of your life. Struggles can cause us to stop clinging on to Jesus. Or it might be that instead of clinging on to Jesus, you're clinging on to something else. By default, if you're not clinging on to Jesus, you're clinging on to something else to give you the hope, happiness, intimacy, and satisfaction we all long for. And the Bible has a lot to say about us clinging on to things, people, and objects that aren't God. And it causes idolatry. And Tim Keller, um, a late pastor in New York, he says, he describes idols as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We can cling on to so many things, many of them not even bad things, to fulfill the longings in us. Perhaps like the Hebrews who were hesitant to tolerate suffering for the name of Jesus, you're clinging on to comfort. For us, clinging on to comfort might look like refusing to follow Jesus' commands when it makes us feel uncomfortable or involves taking a risk. For example, we might struggle to speak to a friend about Jesus or give up our financial security or prioritise Jesus and his kingdom first in our diaries. Or perhaps you're clinging on to other idols, idols of success, power to do whatever you want when you want to, romantic love, popularity on social media, a perfect-looking family, distractions, entertainment, or acceptance from others. The list is endless. Whatever our circumstances, whether we're struggling to cling on to Jesus or struggling to release any idols we're clinging on to instead, the book of Hebrews provides us with a solution of reflecting and feasting on Jesus. Jesus is superior to all others and all things. And the other reason that we should reflect on Jesus is a more general one. It's because knowing God is so crucial for our lives. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, says this. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives, as it would be cruel to our Amazonian tribesmen to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him, as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it is disappointing and an unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. 
disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. It's a big quote. So we need to know who God is to live life well, to manage the ups and downs, to have purpose and meaning, to have joy, hope and peace. And it's not just that we need to know God individually, we need to know him collectively. Packer goes on to say that the root cause of the church's weakness today is ignorance about God. Knowing God is crucial to the flourishing of the church. And knowing God is so important. And the main way we can know God is through Jesus. Through Jesus, God has clearly revealed himself to us. Through Jesus, we can know God, actually know him personally, not just know things about him. We can know Jesus intimately and have a relationship with him. And knowing him relationally means that we will be inevitably changed as we allow him to speak into, shape and transform ourselves and our lives. The outworking of knowing God personally is love for God, love for others, a healed and whole self and a purposeful, rich and joy-filled life. And all of this despite the circumstances we may be facing. So my hope is that by reflecting on Jesus today, we'll be encouraged to cling on to him. Let go of anything else we may be clinging on to, and we will grow in love and awe for him. And all of this despite anything we may be facing. So, let's take a bit of time to look at Jesus. So we're going to start by looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So please do grab your Bibles and follow along with me. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what a start to a letter. Uh, we can learn and reflect on so much about Jesus just from those three verses. So from the first two verses, we can see that Jesus is the unique, superior, and final revelation of God. Previously, God spoke through the prophets in many different ways. But in these last days, the last days being the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, God has spoken to us by his one son, Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Jesus is superior to all the previous way God has revealed himself. Jesus is the final revelation of God, the last word, the ultimate and final word. Indeed, according to John's Gospel, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus is described in the first chapter as the word with a capital W. Jesus is the way we can know God intimately and hear him speak to us today. And then after this, seven facts are stated about Jesus, which highlight his greatness and majesty. So we're going to go through them. So firstly, Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. So all things being everything. Jesus is heir of the nations, the earth, the universe, the new creation. And not only is Jesus heir of all things, but the passage states that through Jesus, God created the universe. So that's our second fact. The universe was made through Jesus. It was made for him, and without him, nothing would have been made. So Jesus was the agent of God's creation. He's looking pretty good, isn't he? <laughs> Number three, 
Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And fourthly, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. So these are both metaphors that help us identify Jesus with God. If you imagine God as the sun, Jesus is the rays that shine forth from it. So God is the sun and Jesus is the rays that emit from the sun. It's an incredible metaphor. And the next metaphor, Jesus is the exact representation of God. The image here the author is trying to point us to is one of a wax stamp on a letter. So if God is the signet ring, so signet rings are those chunky rings that have their own individual carving on them, then Jesus is the seal that you get on a letter when the signet ring is pressed onto the wax and then pressed onto the back of the letter to seal the letter. So the waxy seal on the back of the letter is the exact representation of the signet ring carving. It sort of embodies the signet ring. So Jesus is the embodiment of God. The idea is that to see Jesus is to see what the Father is like. The next, Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Not only is Jesus creator God, but he is the sustainer. He holds all things, the whole creation together, and he's carrying it forth to its appointed destiny. Number six, nearly there, he provided purification for sins. Jesus is our high priest, which is something we'll look at in a little bit more detail later. But just to say now, as part of his role as high priest, Jesus provided purification for our sins. He cleansed us. He cleaned us of all our sin that we were so badly tainted with. The sin that affects every person has been dealt with in the loving sacrifice of Jesus. When we accept Jesus into our lives, we are washed clean. And he did it once and for all, and the act does not need to be repeated. And then finally, number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The majesty of heaven being God the Father. Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father after completing his work on the cross. And no literal location is meant by this phrase, but the language is used to exalt Jesus to show his kingship and his supremacy. And being seated is significant as it shows that his work has finished. His sacrifice has rescued us and nothing else needs to be done. So those are seven incredible facts about Jesus. He is amazing. The author is trying to show us that he is superior to all things. But what do all these things about Jesus mean for us today? How, how do these affect us? Well, firstly, if Jesus is God's final word, his final revelation, if God has spoken conclusively through Jesus, then it begs the question, are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus? God has spoken to us through Jesus, revealing himself to us and telling us all we need to know about him and the kingdom to love, trust and follow him. So we're listening to who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he tells us about the reality we live in. Or we're listening to someone else more than him. Perhaps we're listening to our current trials and situation more than Jesus. I know that happens to me at times. I can be too fixated on the trial and the potential consequences that I struggle to let Jesus shape my perspective, my thoughts, and my emotions. For others, we may be listening and following the trends of our current culture more than Jesus. Our culture today tells us that we shouldn't listen to anyone else apart from ourselves. That we shouldn't listen to any authority figures, but our own desires, our own emotions and ideas should guide us moment by moment. Whatever we think, whatever we feel, whatever we want is what we should do. 
And the technical word for that is called expressive individualism. And sadly, it leaves no space for listening to Jesus as we're prioritizing listening to ourselves instead. Or perhaps it's not that, but instead we're listening to our inner critic more than Jesus and struggling to feel loved and accepted and forgiven by God. Or maybe we take the word of a friend or a family member more seriously than Jesus in the Bible. We need to ask ourselves a question. Are we letting our circumstances, our culture, our friends, our family, our own inner critic shape how we view God and the world? Or are we letting Jesus' voice be superior? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the final revelation of God. His voice and ways should dictate how we live, our trust, and our love for him. So are we listening to him above all other voices that speak into our lives? He is the voice we need to listen to above everyone else's. And then next, the metaphors that show in that passage show that Jesus is God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God embodied. This is helpful for us, as if you want to know what God is like, what he thinks of us and the world, then our starting point should always be Jesus, as he is God with us, God made flesh. Jesus, who loved us all so much that he sacrificed his life for us. And Jesus is the lens through which we should understand the God of the Bible. Jesus is the glasses through which we view and read the Bible. Some of you may have struggled with the depiction of God before Jesus. It's a really common question we get in an alpha environment too. Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? But Jesus is God embodied. He is the lens through which we can see who God is. Gentle, humble, merciful, yet strong and powerful. This is the God we believe in and follow. And then thirdly, the passage shows that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, and yet he cares about us. Jesus is essential to the running of the cosmos. He is the heir of all things. He made the universe and sustains it, according to this passage. But incredibly, after speaking about the cosmic significance of Jesus, the passage moves on to Jesus' personal relationship to us, how he came to purify us to humanity for all of our sins. It's absolutely mad. Jesus, who creates and sustains the universe, the whole universe, everything, entered into his creation to save us. Have you ever played The Sims, the video game? Um, it's a video game that's been around for years. I used to love it as a child. And it's a life simulation game where, in some ways, you get to play God. You can create characters, their homes, their cities, their universe, and you try and care for them as you see their lives unfold, often in chaos. If you know, you know. Um, but, well, Jesus entering into creation is a little bit, just a little bit, like the gamer entering into the Sims world. Jesus, our creator and sustainer, entered into our broken world and took on our form. He lay aside his God powers and became human. And he did it so that he could die for us and purify us, for you and for me. That's how crazy and incredible his love and grace is towards us. The God who runs the world cares so much about us that he entered into his own creation to rescue us. His love for us is incredible. And then finally, the passage depicts Jesus as king, enthroned at the right hand of the Father, after completing the task that was set before him of rescuing humanity through his work on the cross. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus king of our lives? 
or are we? Who has the ultimate authority and control of our life? Who is in the driving seat and leading the way? Because if it's ourself, then Jesus isn't king. It's right for our loving, just and generous, generous king to have authority over our lives. And not just some of it or part of it, but all of it. Our time, our money, resources, relationships, leisure, work and language. All these aspects of our lives, Jesus needs to be at the wheel, guiding and directing our way. So maybe we struggle to allow Jesus into our calendar, allowing him and his kingdom to take first priority. Some of us may struggle to live generously financially or we're in a relationship that doesn't honour God or maybe work has become an idol. Maybe our language doesn't honour God in certain social situations. Jesus being king means all these things need to be submitted to his will and his guidance. And it's not only those tangible things that need to be submitted to Jesus, but Jesus should also be king over our thoughts, our emotions, our hearts and our actions, allowing him to shape our desires into kingdom desires, allowing him to help our thoughts be good and pure and noble and true, allowing him to remind us of a kingdom perspective which we can align our emotions to and so on. It can be really hard to submit our thoughts, our emotions, our heart and desires to God. But it's best for us that they are all submitted to the king, allowing him to take the lead. Because the thing is, Jesus can't be just a guest, an occasional visitor, or even just a good friend to us. He is more than that. He is our king. So we've looked at Hebrews um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and we've discovered how we need to listen to Jesus before all things. How to understand God, we look to Jesus, as Jesus is the exact representation of God. How crazy God's love and grace is for us, that he would enter the creation he made and sustains. And how Jesus is king of our lives, every single part of it. Jesus is so, so good. I'm not sure how many times I'm going to say Jesus this morning, but if you're counting, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> and you guys are doing really well to stay with me. So the next part of our banquet, I think we're going to move on to maybe some of the samosas and lambages. Feel free to shout out if you fancy something different. Um, but yeah, we're going to move on now to look at Jesus as our high priest, which is a theme that is scattered throughout the whole letter. There's three things that we'll focus on in this theme. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus as our sympathizer, and Jesus as our intercessor. So firstly, Jesus as our mediator. The idea is that Jesus is exalted above all human and earthly priests in the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, God formally chose people to serve as priests in Israel. The role was to mediate between God and Israel. Israel were God's people in the Old Testament, but they were constantly messing up. They were sinning and not living in ways that honored God. And as a result, there was a rift or fracture in their relationship to God. A holy, just God cannot ignore sin and do nothing about it, as he wouldn't be just if he did. There had to be a consequence. And the Bible says the consequence or debt of sin is death, an ultimate separation from a holy God. So the Israelites needed help. They needed to find a way to deal with their sin. And God in the Old Testament provides a way to help. Animal sacrifice which can sound a bit barbaric now. But in the day, it was something many other nations were doing to try and please and placate their gods. But the special thing about the Israelite sacrifice was that it acted to purify and cleanse them from their sin rather than placate God. 
So the priest made animal sacrifices on behalf of God's people. The blood of animals was shed daily to cover over the continual sin of people. And the blood of an animal symbolized its life. So the shedding of blood of an animal acted as a visceral reminder of the devastating consequences of sin. But not only that, the animal acted as a symbolic substitute. As a consequence or the debt of sin was death, the animal death and blood acted as a substitute. God provided a way for their sin to be covered so the Israelites didn't have to incur the debt or consequences themselves. But the problem with these sacrifices was that the debt was never fully paid off. The shedding of animal blood only temporarily and symbolically covered over sin. It was only a sign or a symbol of what the shedding of blood could do. Also, the Israelites continued to sin on a daily basis, so sacrifices kept having to be made. But not only that, the priests and the high priests, so the top dog priests, would sin too. So the high priest would make a yearly sacrifice to cover over the annual sins of the Israelites. But even with all the cleansing rituals he'd go through, he'd not, be a, he'd not be suitable to effectively and completely cover over the debt because he himself was corrupted by sin. So he had to sacrifice animals for himself as well. And in Hebrews, Jesus is described as the ultimate high priest. The shedding of his blood was the ultimate sacrifice that covered over the sins of the world once and for all. And this was possible as Jesus was both God and man. As God himself, he had access to God the Father. Nothing, nothing separated him from God the Father. And he was man, fully human in every way, so he could identify with humanity and act as an appropriate substitute. And yet he was sinless. This meant he could pay the price on behalf of, of humanity for their sin. And he could enter God's presence on behalf of humanity. And his death, unlike the animal's death, was sufficient to satisfy the debt of humanity's sin. And that's a lot of Old Testament explanations. If you've lost me, don't worry. Here's your moment to jump right back in. Because what does this mean for us? What does Jesus' sacrifice mean for us today? It means that when we choose to follow Jesus and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior, our sin is not counted against us. And that means that our relationship with God is restored and we have access to God's presence again through his spirit. So Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 23 puts it like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, so the most holy place is where God's presence dwelt in the Old Testament. Basically, it's saying that through Jesus' blood, we have access to God. And then it goes on to say, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, who's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So Jesus is our great high priest and our mediator. We can draw near to God clean and guilt-free. We can approach the throne of the king of the universe boldly and confidently knowing we will be accepted. And I'd love to say that I could share a story here about my one-year-old daughter, how if she's ever done anything that she's not meant to do and expressed or shown feelings of guilt, that I've been able to scoop her up and show her that she can come to me, that she's forgiven and loved and accepted. Except I don't think my daughter understands the concept of guilt yet. There's a few things around our house that me and my husband will consistently say no to. 
don't touch the plants, don't touch the plugs, don't touch the fireplace. Makes sense. What we didn't realize was that every time we say no to those things, we would shake our head. So like this, in a more normal way. <laughs> um, which makes sense because they're linked concepts. The problem is my daughter has associated no to the head shake and not to the fact that she's not meant to be doing what she's doing. So now she'll go up to the plant, the fireplace and the plugs and she'll shake her head at it and then try to touch it and then smile gleefully at us once she's done it. No guilt whatsoever. So sadly, she cannot act as a story illustration for me at this point. But I do have a story about my family dog that fits a little bit better. So our family used to have this sausage dog called Millie. She was very cute. And if we were out for the day, we'd leave her in the home. And if she needed to go to the toilet, we had this little doggy flap installed in one of the back doors, which meant she could go in and out at her leisure. Usually when we returned after being away from the house for a while, she'd be so, so excited to see us. She'd bounce around, she'd run up to one of us, then run to the next person and the next person, and she'd just do that for five minutes. And her little tail would wag so much, it honestly looked like she'd take off like a helicopter. However, on a few occasions when she returned, none of these things would happen. Instead of bouncing around our feet, wagging our tail, and drawing close to us, she would look at us from a distance and then scurry off and hide somewhere, behind a sofa or a curtain or something. And then we, when we came close to her um, to find her, she'd run away and hide again, expressing all those classic guilt-like behaviours, running away, running away, tail between her legs, that sort of thing. This meant that we knew that she'd gone to the toilet somewhere in the house, and we just had to find out why. A great way to start your moment back in the house. But incredibly, back to Jesus, because of what Jesus has done as our high priest, because he acts as our mediator, we don't have to act like my old family dog. We don't have to run away in guilt or fear, but we can approach God, we can approach the throne room with boldness and confidence, knowing that Jesus' blood has covered over our sin, that has been sprinkled over guilty consciences, as the passage says. So we can enter God's presence freely, fully assured that he loves and accepts us, wants to relate to us and know us. And this is for all of eternity, as Jesus' saving power lasts forever. God's acceptance and love of us is never failing or ending. It's incredible and it's huge. No matter our past failings, our present sin, or our future mishaps, we can approach our Father knowing he welcomes us in. Guilt is not something we have to hold on to, but our guilt should lead us into the Father's arms who forgives us and restores us. And all this because of Jesus' continual med mediation for us. So that's Jesus as our mediator, but Jesus as high priest doesn't just act as our mediator, he's also our sympathizer. So I think now in the banquet, move, we're moving on to the rice and the dal. So Jesus is our high priest. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way. So um, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus entered into broken humanity and a broken world as a man. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This means our frail and feeble condition, which is prone to sin. He was tempted in the literal sense. We see an example of that when Satan leads Jesus into the wilderness after his baptism. 
And the Hebrews passage says that he was tempted in every way, so he must have faced countless more temptations in his life. He was also tempted through many trials. He was homeless. His family and best friends turned against him. He endured gossip, slander, mocking, beatings, periods of hunger, rejection. He was crucified on a cross, suffering unfairly. Yet he did not sin. He remained faithful, steadfast, and righteous throughout. He did not waver in his love, faithfulness, and obedience to the Father. So when we face trials and temptations today, when we're tempted to sin, that sin not just in the sense of things like anger or lust or gossip, but also things like the sin of not loving God or others, not trusting God above all things. Jesus is there. Jesus is not distant, lacking understanding of our human nature or the temptation of sin. He's been there himself. He has a tender, knowing and loving concern for us. He knows the pain of our experiences, understands the temptations, and he knows our frailty. We are not alone. There is so much encouragement and hope in that. And not only that, but he knows exactly what we need through his abundance of grace and mercy for us. He's able to strengthen us to resist the temptation and persevere through the trials we're facing so we do not fall back. He knows how hard it can be for us, and he meets us in that moment. So next time you're tempted, take heart knowing Jesus knows, he understands, he's been there. He knows your humanness and he's with you and he's resisted this temptation himself. So he's able and can give you everything you need to resist it. You don't need to fall back, but with Jesus you can get through. And as well as being our sympathizer, Jesus as high priest is also our intercessor. So that's the last of the three points, so it's our dessert for the morning. So Jesus intercedes for us. In the Old Testament, priests in Israel not only offered animal sacrifices for the sins of Israel, but they also offered prayers of intercession, praying that Israel would be pardoned for their sin. So they didn't just act as a go-between between God and Israel, they also actively advocated for Israel. But a problem with their prayers would be that they would be intermittent. The priests couldn't pray all the time. They couldn't constantly advocate for Israel. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it describes Jesus as always living to intercede for us. Always. Jesus doesn't just act as our mediator, but he's always and continually interceding and advocating for us. And this is really good news, as we continually sin, fall short, and take steps away from God. Jesus continues to intercede on our behalf to the Father, lovingly praying that we would never fall away from God. He also prays that we will have faith and strength, that we will experience God's presence and love for protection, hope and healing and many other things. Jesus not only knows and understands what we're going through, he not only mediates for us when we mess up, but he's praying for us so that we can get through our temptation or time of trouble. And he advocates for us to the Father. And Jesus' prayers are, of course, going to be effective prayers. Beyond anyone else, he is the person you want to be praying for you. So next time you're facing trouble and trials, take heart knowing Jesus is holding you up in prayer. The most powerful king of the universe is advocating for you, praying for your faith, forgiveness, strength, and so much more. So Jesus is our high priest, is our mediator, our sympathizer, and our interceder. And those three things can help us realize the most liberating truth that we are fully loved and fully known by God. 
Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. He took our place so we could enter into the presence of God and be accepted by him. So that's the mediator part. And Jesus fully knows us. He knows our every thought and emotion, our every trial and temptation. He doesn't know us on a superficial, distant level, but on a personal, deep level. And that's the sympathizer and the intercessor part. And then despite our shortcomings, our flaws, our issues, he loves us so deeply and so completely. And this is such good news for us. We are fully loved and fully known by God. Tim Keller puts it like this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. We're not loved like this by anyone else. No one else knows you like Jesus. Your best friend or your spouse or your parent, they might know you pretty well, but they don't know everything. There might be some thoughts, things, actions that you've done that you've never told anyone about, things you've hidden from others, potentially because you fear that they may not be your friend or your spouse if they knew those things about you. And also, there's just no way of telling anyone everything about you. It's impossible to inform someone of all your thoughts every day. But it's not like but it's not like that with Jesus. He knows everything, literally everything. And he knows in an understanding way, given he's entered into our humanity too. But incredibly, even though he knows everything, he loves us. Your relationship with him is not contingent on what he doesn't know about you. Because he knows everything and loves you anyway. There is one person in the universe that knows everything about you and loves you. As a result of Jesus as our high priest, fully knowing and truly loving us, we don't have to hide or pretend or strive to be something we're not. We don't have to put up masks or hold on to guilt and shame. We can be our authentic selves, coming to him as we are, knowing that his acceptance of us will never change. And this is the basis of our self-esteem. Being fully loved and fully known is the basis of our understanding of our value and worth. Instead of basing our self-esteem on what we or others think of ourselves, which go up and down depending on our achievements, our performance, our status, our mood, our finances, our relationship status and our circumstances, we base our self-esteem, our understanding of our worth, on knowing that we are fully loved and fully known by God and nothing will change that. We are so worthy because God chose to know us and love us and will always choose to know us and love us. So our self-esteem, our sense of value or worth is stable and it's high because we are fully known and loved by the most important being in the universe. And it's such a liberating truth. We don't have to people please, gain, God's, gain God or others approval, be popular and so on to feel worth something or valuable. We don't have to achieve big things or have a certain lifestyle or a life stage. We are just known and loved and deeply worthy and valued as a result. It's incredible. And I think some of us really need to hear this truth today. Jesus fully knows you, all of you, and he truly loves you. And this is the basis of your self-worth or your self-esteem. 
and it stands no matter the circumstances. You are so worthy because God chose to know you and love you. In the eyes of God, you are so, so valuable and precious. So Jesus, as our high priest, is our mediator, our sympathizer, and our intercessor, and he fully knows and fully loves us. So today, we've looked at Jesus in a banquet sort of style. We've looked at how he is the final revelation of God, the embodiment of God, the creator and sustainer, and the king of the universe. How he is our high priest, our mediator, sympathizer, and intercessor, so that we can be accepted, fully known, and fully loved by God, which is the basis of our self-worth and our self-esteem. My hope for you today, that as you've listened to all these wonderful things about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit has stirred you and caught your attention over whatever you need to hear and know today about him. Whatever it is you need to be reminded of about Jesus that helps you cling to him and persevere in life. Whatever it is you need to know to let go of the other things you may cling on to for hope, security and fulfillment and instead cling to Jesus. God wants us to live life to him in the full. And the invitation today is to step into life with him in its fullness by trusting Jesus over all other people and all other things. So if you're able, would you like to stand? We're just going to take a moment now to welcome the Holy Spirit. He's been here with us this whole morning. Lou ended um, her worship set on turning her eyes, turning our eyes towards Jesus, and that's that's not something that we'd planned, not something that we knew. But it just feels like the Holy Spirit is working here today and wants us to turn our eyes towards Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus, this morning. We believe that God and Jesus that and the Holy Spirit that they speak today. And there'll be a number of things that God wants to do with us this morning. Mm. A number of ways he wants us to respond to, to what's been said, to what he's been doing in your heart already. to you we uh, love to do it love to make space for God and there are people before and throughout the service who are praying for us listening into God and one of the pictures that that someone who's been praying got was of God stirring up a lake of still water and it's like hunger just coming to life and I think that's happening in some of you now whereas Hethel was talking and as we were worshipping earlier on there was just a faint stirring of hunger and you thought, oh, yes, Jesus. I really want you. Or I want to want you. 
And Jesus, we, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Would you increase your presence stir our love? We need you so much. And who you are. Yeah, I feel like there'll be a number of people in this room today who just know you need Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus in a certain situation, a certain circumstance. You just need him in your life more. And he's there, but you know you need more of that. Mm. Yeah, and I think Jesus' invitation is to receive that this morning. To turn your eyes to fix upon him, to be prayed for, to, to receive more of him. There's also been quite a few senses around peace, which I know very much was a part of our worship earlier on, wasn't it? But that that part of the song, let every anxious part in me, let every fearful thought in me be set free, be set free. And I feel like there are some people in this room who want that, but don't feel like they have access to it. Like it's not a reality. And I just want to remind us of the words of Jesus in John 14. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. And I don't give as the world gives. Father, Jesus, thank you that the world gives to those who deserve it and the world gives sometimes with strings attached, but that is not how you have given your peace. And I pray right now for an open door in people's hearts. Lord Jesus, for Augustine once said, I've tasted and now my heart burns with desire for your peace. Jesus, would that hunger and thirst that we all have for your peace, somewhere deep down, Lord, would you satisfy it today? Would you come and increase what you're doing? And just wash away anxiety and wash away fear. There might be others in the room that um, you just want Jesus to be your everything. You want to have your whole life submitted to him, to, for him to be leading the way, for him to be guiding your thoughts, your emotions, um, for him to be your purpose, your hope, or just all of it. Yeah, I just feel like um, God loves that and sees that and just wants to bless that this morning. There might be a moment of repentance or handing something over to him or trusting in him again. Um, yeah, God wants to meet you in that. It looks like, um, yeah, the Holy Spirit is moving around the room, but we'd love to give you a moment just to invite you um, to come up to the front or sides if you'd like to receive prayer. And we'd love to just bless what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. So if there's anything that resonated um, from the words, from the talk, from the worship, if you just want something of Jesus, you just want more of him, then we'd really encourage you to come up.
um, to come up now just to the front and the sides and we'd love to join you in prayer. So as people come up, um, please do not leave them waiting long. If you're in a, mem- if you're in a small group, um, yeah, please do join them in prayer. We'd love for boys to pray for boys and girls for girls. And let's just bless what the Holy Spirit is doing this morning. And there'll be a number of people responding around the room too. So do pray for the person next to you as well. We just wait for you, Lord Jesus. I realize for some people, if you're new here, this might be a little bit odd. I just encourage you to do do whatever feels comfortable to you. Close your eyes. uh, Relax. We just know that God loves to be with us wherever we make space. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.